Hi, and welcome to the October edition of the EVJ podcast. I'm your host, Rhiannon Morgan. In this episode, we have two medicine theme papers for you. We're joined by Fernando Malalana, who's talking about equine recurrent uveitis, and Sarah Ross discussing the prevalence of head shaking in the UK. Fernando Malalana is a senior lecturer in internal medicine at the University of Liverpool's Philip Lieberhum Equine Hospital. He's currently undertaking a PhD investigating the epidemiology of equine recurrent uveitis. This paper forms part of that work and is titled The Role of Leptospira Species in Horses Affected with Recurrent Uveitis in the UK. Hi Fernando, thanks for joining us today um, to discuss your recent paper in EVJ. Could you start by giving us an idea of the general prevalence of equine recurrent uveitis um, on different continents and tell us why they differ worldwide? Yeah, hello everybody. Um, So yes, um, the main studies on um, uveitis have really been done either in America or in mainland Europe. So the prevalence in America has always been quoted at between 2 and 25% of horses. Um, So it's a big range, I suppose. In Europe, they say seven to ten percent, but it can be up to seventy percent in areas prone to flooding. So I think that their worry is that uh, Leptospira, which is a bacteria that is waterborne, uh, it's involved in lots of these cases. Uh, so in areas we potentially get flooded or very humid, the prevalence is much higher than other um, more dry areas. Uh, there's not really studies done in the UK, to be honest. Um, the only one that has been done suggests a much, much lower prevalence of uh, 0.3%. So big difference between what we seem to get in the UK and other parts of the world. So what exactly defines ERU? Um, there are obviously various etiologies hypothesized to cause the condition. And in particular, can you tell us how Leptospira influences this disease? Yeah, so I mean, uveitis is an inflammation of the uvea, and horses like to have uveitis, I suppose, any major ulcer and trauma to the eye, they, they get uveitis. Uh, I suppose ERU is more the autoimmune form um, that has recurrent episodes um, throughout the life of the horse. Um, so it's an autoimmune disease, and I suppose we know that because we treat it with steroids. Uh, we don't treat it with antimicrobials. So it's a good question as to if this is a bacteria, why do we treat it with steroids? The truth is that I don't think we still know why lepto causes uveitis. So there's a couple of theories. I think that the kind of the theory coming more from Germany and, and Switzerland is that actually it is a low-grade infection in the eye uh, and that triggers an immune reaction. Whether the theory coming more from other parts of the world, maybe from, from America, is that the lepto actually doesn't cause an infection. What it does is cause a cross-reaction between the lepto and the eye. So to explain it a little bit, um, the horse gets exposed to lepto, um, the immune system gets rid of the lepto, causes a relatively benign infection in most cases. But what it's been proven is that there's an antigenic relationship between lepto and the eye. So bits of the lepto look very similar to bits of the eye. So it's like the immune system gets a little bit um, cross-reaction and starts attacking the eye, perceiving that what it's attacking is actually a bacteria. So uh, those are the two theories for lepto. It might be that there's something in the middle or a little bit of both, to be honest. So what were the specific aims and objectives of your study? So there have been lots of studies looking at lepto in, as I said, America and Germany, but really very little done in the UK since the 80s. So we just wanted to carry that a bit forward. 
And I think there were some limitations with also with those stories in the 80s. So we just wanted to potentially cover those limitations and try to get a better picture. So we wanted to know amongst the uveitis cases in the UK, how many were actually caused by leptospira. We also wanted to know with servars of leptospira were involved in the UK. In America, the obvious thing is Pomona. In Europe, it's mostly Gripotifosa. But in the UK, we weren't sure which servars were involved. And the third objective, I suppose, was we wanted to make sure if we have a case of uveitis in the UK, is it okay with taking a blood sample and checking for lepto levels to see if this is a leptospira-induced uveitis or not, or will there be other confounding factors? So those were the three objectives, really. So what methods did you use to investigate this influence of lepto on EIU? Yeah, so we... Um, what we did is to uh, compare the seropositivity of horses with lepto and those with controls. And that's what it had been done in the past. So basically measure antibody levels in horses with uveitis and horses with perfectly healthy eyes. But that has lots of limitations because lepto is actually quite widespread. So lots of horses would be positive without really meaning very much. So we went a little bit further. And what we did is to measure the antibody levels also in the eye. Uh, so actually what we did is to get eyes from horses um, that had eyes enucleated because of ERU and we measured antibody levels in the equios. And on top of that, we um, did histo in the eyes to make sure that we were dealing with um, lepto, with uveitis, sorry, and not other disease that could be causing the eye discomfort. And then we did the same for control eyes. So horses that were euthanized for reasons other than eye discomfort. What we did is to uh, or eye pathology, what we did is to uh, get those eyes, make uh, do history to make sure they were healthy, and then measure antibodies, not only in the blood of those horses, but also in the equios, and uh, to compare that. So did you find any particular signalment differences between populations with ERU and control populations? No, so there was no differences uh, between um, our cases uh, and the controls. Um, there was no differences in signalment, statistically speaking. So what was the overall prevalence of seropositivity in horses with and without ERU? And were these comparable to previous studies? So in our study, um, there was no statistical difference between cases and controls. The prevalence of, UV, of leptospira in the blood um, of uveitis was actually higher than in controls. And it, it seems like a relatively big difference. It was 65.5% in uveitis and 42% in controls. But there was no statistical difference, although perhaps this is to do with the um, low number of cases in, in the study. But no statistical significance in, in our study. Now, does this compare to previous studies? Well, there's only two studies done in the UK before looking at this. Um, one done in 1981 by Hathaway et al. And the prevalence in that study was relatively similar. Um, it was around 70% for uveitis and again, uh, around 40% for controls. Um, but it's much higher if you compare it to a study that uh, Andy Matthews did in um, also in the 80s in Scotland, uh, where the prevalence was um, between 9 and 11%, so much, much lower. So a slight difference there between the study in Scotland and the two done in, the, um, in England. So of the horses that were seropositive to leptospira with ERU, how many of these had detectable antibodies within their aqueous humour? So, yeah, I suppose that was part of the key of the study. We wanted to know how many of the cases actually were caused by lepto. So what we did is, I mean, having detectable antibodies in the aqueous doesn't quite prove that there 
left to induce because if you've got a uveitis and your blood ocular barrier is affected, you can have leakage of antibodies from the blood into the eye. So what you do is you measure something called a C-value, which uh, means that you divide the antibodies in the eye, the titer, divided by the titer of the antibodies in the blood. And if you get a value of four or more, that actually suggests that the antibodies are being produced directly in the eye rather than leaking from the system. And that supports a diagnosis of, um, of uh, leptospira. So uh, when we did that C-value, uh, we only really found... Um, that uh, uh, truly leptospira-induced uh, uveitis in only two cases. Um, so that's around 6.7% of the uveitis cases in the UK, or the ones that we analyze. Only 6.7% were positive for lepto. And were these also seropositive? So yeah, they were all seropositive. I suppose, interestingly, and, and that's part of the question of the study, amongst the uveitis cases, so if we only look at the uveitis, there was no difference in seroprevalence between the ones that were uh, led to induce and non-led to induce. So I suppose that suggests that if you've got a uveitis case, simply taking a blood sample and measuring lepto titer is not really used um, at detecting whether it's led to induce or not. You do have to take samples from the eyes. Okay, so has this study changed the way you manage ERU cases? I suppose we know that we don't have to panic. Uh, it is not a huge number of lepto induced. But if it is a case where you suspect that it could be leptospira-induced, and in my experience, they tend to be nasty uveitis cases that don't respond terribly well um, to medication, I would be more tempted to take a sample of equios earlier on the disease and calculate the C-value. Because if it is leptopositive, uh, there are surgical approaches more suitable to that kind of uveitis. So yes, I suppose it means that if I'm unhappy at the progress of the case uh, earlier on, the course of the disease, I will take the sample of equios and analyze for that. So what's your main take-home message for practitioners? Yeah, so as I said, I think the take-home message is if you've got a uveitis case, based on this study, potentially taking a blood sample is not going to give you the whole picture. So if you suspect that this is a nasty case that could be leptospira-induced, either take a sample of equios or if you're unsure how to do it or um, potentially refer it earlier on to a center where they can do it. Because as I said, if it is positive for lepto, uh, there are surgical options suitable for that type of cases. Okay, I think that's a great message for us all to bear in mind when treating these cases. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much. Sarah Ross is here to discuss her paper on the prevalence of head shaking within the equine population in the UK. Sarah performed this research whilst working as a resident in equine internal medicine at the University of Bristol. Sarah, thank you very much for joining us to talk about your recent paper in EVJ. Um, could you start off by giving us a summarised overview of head shaking? Um, tell us what the range of clinical signs this disease can manifest as and um, what are the common, condition, uh, common causes of this condition? Sure, no problem. So head shaking is a condition whereby affected horses show repeated, uncontrollable, predominantly vertical movements of the head and neck, and is often accompanied by signs of nasal irritation. The significance of the disease is that severely affected horses appear to have compromised welfare, and indeed significant self-inflicted trauma has been observed. Published figures for the prevalence of head shaking in horses in the UK, or indeed elsewhere, are lacking. Clinical signs can include any of the following. Head movements. These are most often vertical, however, horizontal or rotational movements may also be observed. 
excessive rubbing of the muzzle, excessive and persistent snorting, acting as though an insect has flown up the nose, striking at the nose with the foreling, bearing an anxious facial expression, very low head carriage, and finally, a tendency to submerge the muzzle in water. In most cases, head shaking is believed to occur due to an idiopathic neuropathic facial pain syndrome, which has been termed trigeminal mediated head shaking. So what were the specific aims and objectives of, of your study? So the primary aim was to estimate owner reported prevalence of head shaking in horses in the UK. Secondary aims were to report case background and disease characteristics as reported by owners. Okay, and as I understand, this research was mainly conducted by a, an online questionnaire. So how did you devise this survey and what did you include in it? Yes, that's correct. So we created an online questionnaire using Bristol Online Surveys. A sample size calculator was used to calculate the number of responses required to estimate the true prevalence of head shaking signs based on an estimated population size of 1 million. We calculated that a sample size of 932 responses was required. To reduce potential for bias, the questionnaire was given a neutral title of horse health questionnaire. The content included questions on two additional conditions, namely laminitis and sarcoids, as well as the condition of interest. There were two reasons for this. Firstly, to disguise the area of interest, minimize response bias. Secondly, published figures for prevalence of head shaking in horses in the UK are lacking. However, figures for the prevalence of laminitis in horses in the UK do exist. By including questions on laminitis, we could calculate an estimated prevalence for our sample population, which could then be compared to previously published figures. A close match in terms of agreement would lend further support to our estimated prevalence for head shaking. The questionnaire was pre-tested using a small convenience group of horse owners, and based on feedback, the questionnaire was revised accordingly prior to mass distribution. The questionnaire was advertised online via social media, horse forums, first opinion practices and equestrian magazines. Okay, so what prevalence of head shaking did you find in the UK population? And did you find any association of age, breed or sex in this cohort? So in the population study, the estimated prevalence of owner reported head shaking within the last year was 4.6%. A further 1.6% of horses were reported to have shown signs of head shaking, but not within the last year. The equine population of Great Britain in 2015 was estimated at 944,000. This therefore represents a significant number of horses that are likely to be affected with head shaking. Looking at age, there was no significant difference between the median age of head shakers and non-head shakers. Our study corroborates the assertion that head shaking is not a condition of the young horse, Indeed, in this population, the median age of head shakers aged less than or equal to 20 years was 12 years of age. No evidence was found for a sex or pre breed predisposition within the sample studied. Okay, you also investigated the influence of seasonality on head shaking. Did this have any effect on the clinical signs? Yes, we asked respondents to indicate in which month head shaking signs first began and the three most frequent months with respect to onset were March, April and May. Around one in five head shaking horses were reported to head shake all year round, with the remainder affected for a variable portion of the year. The season of the year during which the highest percentage of horses were reported to head shake was summer. This was followed in descending order by spring, autumn and winter. 
It may follow that when respondents were asked to consider a range of weather conditions, head shaking was reported to be most commonly associated with sunshine and heat. Considering severity of head shaking signs, a grading scale from 0 to 3 was used, with grade 3 out of 3 representing the most severely affected horses. The seasons for which the highest percentage of head shaking horses were typically asymptomatic, i.e. grade 0 out of 3, were autumn and winter. In contrast, the seasons for which the highest percentage of horses were typically symptomatic, i.e. scored grade 1 out of 3 or higher, were spring and summer. So what other variables did you find had an influence on the head shakers? We looked at the effect of exercise. Of horses that were lunged, around 50% were reported to head shake during lunged exercise. Of horses that were ridden, 95% were reported to head shake during ridden exercise. While fewer horses were reported to head shake at rest compared to exercise, approximately one in four horses that were turned out were reported to show signs at rest. And of horses that were stabled, approximately 1 in 10 were reported to head shake at rest. While it is well documented that exercise precipitates head shaking in many cases, horses affected at rest represent a particular welfare issue. Should treatment fail in these horses, retirement will not be curative, leaving euthanasia on welfare grounds as a viable option. So veterinary intervention you found was only sought for a third of the horses with signs of head shaking. What did you find were the reasons behind this and what diagnostics were you finding that vets were using when they did see them? Reasons for the low level of veterinary intervention were beyond the scope of the study and were not investigated. We can merely speculate, however, it is possible that horse owners perceive that veterinary investigation is often fruitless. Alternatively, a lack of veterinary intervention could reflect that many horse owners simply do not associate signs of head shaking with expression of facial pain. Considering the horses for which veterinary intervention was sought, the three most commonly performed diagnostic tests were dental examination, oral and ophthalmological examination respectively. Endoscopy and radiography of the head were performed less commonly. Both computed tomography and diagnostic analgesia were reported infrequently in just one horse each. Okay, and lastly, how does trigeminal neuralgia um, in horses and humans compare? And are we underdiagnosing the condition, do you think? Well, trigeminal neuralgia and trigeminal mediated head shaking are both conditions of neuropathic facial pain that can become recurrent and chronic. While they do share obvious clinical similarities, there are differences between the conditions. For example, human trigeminal neuralgia is most often a unilateral condition, whereas trigeminal mediated head shaking most commonly occurs bilaterally. In addition, the trigeminal nerve from head shaking affected horses does not show histopathological changes, whereas in human patients with trigeminal neuralgia, the most common cause is focal demyelination of the trigeminal nerve which we would see histologically in horses if this was also the cause in them. Of the 63 head shakers in the current population, only 19 were seen by a veterinary surgeon for head shaking, and just one was reported to be diagnosed with trigeminal mediated head shaking. Indeed, in this sample population, the cause remains unknown was indicated much more frequently, and there are a few potential explanations for this. The findings may reflect lack of awareness of trigeminal mediated head shaking as a potential cause, or may reflect hampered ability of attending veterinarians to perform complete investigation. A lack of owner familiarity with the terminology is a further possibility, 
And it may be the case that vets deliberately do not use the terminology trigeminal mediated when having conversations with clients in order to avoid confusing or alienating their clients with jargon. It should be borne in mind that the findings of this study are based on owner-reported responses rather than veterinary responses, and that is, of course, a limitation. Okay, and finally, what's your take-home message for our practitioners? Well, with an owner-reported prevalence of 4.6% of horses head-shaking within the last year, we can say that head-shaking in horses in the UK is a fairly common condition. Given that over two-thirds of owners of head-shaking horses fail to seek veterinary attention for head-shaking, it appears there is still a lack of knowledge that it is often a medical condition. Okay, well, thank you very much for your time today and for joining us, Sarah. Not at all. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks again for listening and please join us in a couple of months for our next episode.